Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're in new and uncharted territory. Each week, our producers dig up short interview clips on every imaginable subject from Big Think's archives. They're a total surprise to my guests and to me. We ask our guests, who are highly accomplished people in their fields, to respond spontaneously to these ideas that they may or may not have any knowledge about. Today, I'm joined by actor, author, and New Orleans native, Wendell Pierce. You may know him from his powerful work as Detective Bunk from The Wire and musician Antoine Baptiste in Treme. He's just written a book called The Wind in the Reeds. It's a memoir that's anchored in Wendell's experiences using art, politics, and activism to help rebuild his hometown after Hurricane Katrina. Welcome to Think Again, Wendell. Thank you. Good to be here. I think I want to start by asking you, what do you think makes art authentic or real? Like, what is authenticity in art as opposed to inauthenticity? When something is truly authentic, it speaks to people from disparate walks of life who speak different languages from different cultures. Uh, it even is classic in the sense that it speaks to that humanity in us all, even across time and generations. That's why Shakespeare speaks to us today. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about after the flood of 2005, pretty soon thereafter, maybe the next year, the year after, you did a production in Lower Ninth Ward yeah. of Waiting for Godot, of right. Beckett's play Waiting for Godot. And that's a really striking image to me that you have this play which is set in this sort of like vacuous, empty wasteland, written in a very different time and place from 2005 New Orleans. But, you know, were there people there that are like, what the hell? Like, we don't need this now. We need food, you know? And yet, that doesn't seem to have been the reaction. Like, No, the reaction was uh, when people came to see it, first of all, it was curiosity. What are they going to do in the midst of this destruction in the Lower Ninth War? What is the uh, play? Uh, it was Paul Chan's idea, the artist Paul Chan, who first just took the description of a road, a tree, and posted it all around town. And people, what is that? And then later on people realized, oh, it's the description of the setting of a play. I studied theater many years ago at NYU, and one of the things that always bugged me about the theater scene is that it was kind of an echo box, right? Like, mm. you know, you either have Broadway where mostly the audiences are like comfortable middle-class people coming right, right. from out of town, mm -hmm. or you have the downtown theater in a hole in the wall on the seventh floor with no elevator, and the whole audience is NYU students like, <laughs> right, watching the play that, right, with their right, friend right. in it, right? Um, but so, like, when you guys did this play, though, I guess because of the location and it was free, mm -hmm. did you have very unlikely theater audiences in there? Like, people Absolutely. who would never go to a play? There were some people who had never been to the Lower Ninth Ward, you know, right. this uh, sort of elite business social class knew the importance of Samuel Beckett's work, that they had to come and see it, but who had never really been to the uh, Lower Ninth Ward. It would be the equivalent of people in New York living on the Upper West Side and then finally going to the South Bronx. South Bronx was what yeah. I was going to no, say. Yeah. So that was interesting. Uh, so you had lawyers next to Longshoremen and uh, rich, poor, black, white. That was the brilliant thing about the production and people coming together. And then to find the common denominator in us all of people from a community that had gone through, you know, its darkest hour. And we knew that whatever was our home, there was a chance that it would never come back. And we all, in a sense, were a little adrift and lost. 
and you find that culturally happened in New Orleans where culture plays a more significant role throughout our history, captured Africans enslaved, creating jazz, associating pleasure clubs, creating the second line out of Jim Crow laws where they didn't have access, so you pooled your money in benevolent societies. Even with this play, Free Southern Theater, a company that was created during the Civil Rights Movement that inspired me to be an actor, first did this play in its first season in 1966, I think it was, in uh, the Mississippi Delta. Okay. And there's a great story where he was standing, uh, the director, standing in the back of the audience and there was a sharecropper, an elderly black man who at intermission turned to him and said, excuse me, are you a part of this place? He said, yes, I'm the director because I could tell you something. He says, what? He ain't coming. <laughs> he said, he ain't coming. This guy, no, he ain't coming. I know this play. So here's this existential play by Samuel Beckett written under Nazi occupation in Paris, speaking to a sharecropper black man in the midst of the violence that was Jim Crow in the Mississippi Delta, watching the play and having it speak to his humanity. That is the authenticity I was talking about before. And that same play, speaking to the people of Sarajevo in the 1980s when Susan Sontag did a production of it there in the midst of the violence of the Balkan War, is everything lost? Have we lost our way? Is there any meaning to our life? If this is happening all around us and have it resonate there and resonate in that Mississippi Delta and resonate in the Lower Ninth Ward and resonate under occupied France, it just shows you how this existential play actually is very authentic and speaks to the human spirit. And people from disparate walks of life come together because of it, you know. That's the impact that art can have. While entertainment is a residual of it, the real purpose of it is that. That's, that's where you connect into the spirituality that connects us through time and space. Well, now we have to get to the business of talking <laughs> about whatever random clips my... Uh, oh, I'm, <laughs> you, I, I mean, you are discovering this with me. I, I am. I, I realize. In, in this moment, and I like that. I mean, I like the spontaneity and surprise. So let's see what we got. The first one here is a video called, Is Sex Irrational? Wow. To which I feel like the answer is yes. But let's see what, what, what we have here. This is... Uh, is Sex this is, yeah, Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. Let's see what he's got to say. One important active area is the origin of sex and why we have sex at all. It's controversial and interesting and unsolved. Another one would be the embryological roots by which genes influence bodies. Every animal is trying to maximize the number of genes that it passes on. And so mixing half your genes with those of a sexual partner seems like an odd thing to do. So it needs an explanation, and various explanations have been suggested. I suppose the most fashionable one now is the one that's associated with the name of W.D. Hamilton, my former Oxford colleague. He took the view that parasites are the most important selection pressure bearing on creatures. Because they are evolving so incredibly rapidly, the genes that any one individual needs in order to survive in the present generation of parasites may not be the genes that are needed in future generations. So there needs to be an extremely rapid changing of gene pools. And sex, well, sex certainly will do that. And the only question is whether the pressure from parasites is sufficiently great 
to compensate the so-called twofold cost of sex, the fact that sexual reproduction does throw away half the genes in each generation. I wonder where in the description of that is desire. Hmm. Because when I think of sex, I am consumed with just that one impulse of desire. Right. The second part of his theorem, you know, the parasitic nature of the journey of life is that you have to make sure that you reproduce right. faster than the parasite can consume right. you, ultimately, right. is what he was saying. Tossing all of that to the wind is just desire. I see a beautiful woman or whoever you desire, and you want to engage. You, there's the sense memory of putting your hands on them and touching them and what about all the wonderful stuff we love after sex of lying there together and, and the need of that when you don't have it <laughs> that, that also comes to mind how irrational you become that you just act on that desire and so there's that part of the irrational thinking of it so if we subscribe to the theorems of holding on to your gene pool and also reproducing to outbeat the parasite if that is the nature of sex, then it is irrational because I give no thought to that when I just want to act on impulse and desire. Yeah, I mean, well, well said. <laughs> and while, while you were talking, while you were talking, I was thinking about, so the thing that always gets under my skin with evolutionary explanations for things is that all the stuff I'm interested in like desire, like the different configurations of what love turns into, you know, those sort of, I don't know, more romantic or aesthetic or artistic considerations, that's not really in there. You know, and that's... Right. I think it's not in his explanation, but ultimately, going back to art, art is the combination of technical proficiency, the exactness of science, the exactness of evolutionary thought, with aesthetic considerations expressive thought, right. impulse. The better art is when there is that absolute balance. True. It reminds me of uh, when one of the first NASA astronauts went into space and he said, from now on, we should send a philosopher, a poet, and a priest <laughs> into space. <laughs> and so we ultimately have a little bit of each of those in us. And when it comes to sex, I choose think about just the desire. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think I'm, I'm there with you. So Good. On that, on that note, let's try it. Let's see what's next. Today's show is brought to you by Realty Shares. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not necessarily trust myself when it comes to investing in anything much riskier than a pair of movie tickets. And that's okay. If I need brain surgery, I'll go to a brain surgeon. If I need to invest as little as $1,000 and I want to put it into some of the fastest growing real estate markets in the US, I'll feel better knowing that the deals I'm picking have been evaluated first by professionals. At Realty Shares, you can create an account in minutes, and while all investments are risky, you can rest assured that the people who spend their whole lives thinking about this stuff have carefully evaluated each deal that's offered. Thousands of investors use their platform, and Realty Shares has already returned over $10 million to investors to date. To get started, just go to realtyshares.com forward slash think and create a free account. Or you could just give up your dreams of being a podcast host and go to business school. And now, back to a really great conversation with actor Wendell Pierce. Share your time like a micro loan. And this is Adam Grant 
who I know to be the youngest full professor of business ever or something from Wharton School of Business. So let's see what he has to say. When I think about a giver, I think about somebody who actually enjoys helping others and often prefers to be on the contributing side of a relationship as opposed to the receiving side. And will we'll typically you know, make introductions, share knowledge, perhaps provide mentoring with no strings attached. How does a giver sort of succeed but also lift other people up? Not every act of giving has to be extraordinarily time-consuming or costly, but rather there are ways that you can take small bites of time, almost like a micro-loan, and actually share your expertise or your connections with other people. And so one of the recommendations for people who want to achieve success while also helping others is to figure out what are the ways that you can help others at a small cost to you. Social networking like Adam Rifkin, he's one of America's top networkers. And one of the things that Adam does is he really practices this idea of a five-minute favor. So every day he's looking for ways that he can just spend a few minutes of his time to make an introduction between two people who could benefit from knowing each other. And I think that looking for these opportunities can be really powerful. But Adam doesn't stop there. He then says, okay, after I help someone, I'm going to go and ask them for help. But he's not asking for himself most of the time. He's asking them to help other people in his network. I think that Adam is on a mission, actually, to create a pay-it-forward norm, where then he builds a whole network of people who are willing to help each other out, regardless of whether they've received from each other in the past. I find that very moving. I find that very moving. I think it's pretty brilliant. The work that I've been doing in New Orleans yeah. you know, for a decade now is arduous and time-consuming and can be very difficult, can be draining. And um, maybe for the sake of the audience who may or may not have read the right. book, you want to give just a brief uh, praises uh, uh, of uh, what you've been up to. At, at Post-Katrina, my neighborhood of Pontchartrain Park was destroyed. I realized that it was important to us to rebuild it ourselves. It was a neighborhood born out of the civil rights movement to give access to suburbia to African Americans. And my parents' generation worked hard and fought hard to make sure that it became this bucolic place to grow up and gave me a great foundation to go out into the world and be uh, successful. It was some of the deepest part of the flooding. 10 years ago, and I thought it would be blasphemous if my generation allowed, the Joshua generation allowed this Moses generation's dream and reality of our wonderful neighborhood of Punchatrain Park go away. So we put together our own community development corporation, got those properties sold back to government, and started to rebuild our neighborhood with solar and geothermal homes. And 10 years down the road, we have really rebuilt our neighborhood. It was an overwhelming task. I'm not a developer, I'm an actor. I think of all the difficulties we had. I realized that there's so much power in the five-minute favor that he was talking about. Most people have given up. You know, some people have fallen away and I had to get new people to see my vision of moving on, to get a movement going. It's really all of those five minutes adding up that can be so impactful. What it also helps is those people who have this part of their human nature, an ugly part of our human nature of being protectionist and isolationist, to fight against that xenophobia, all of that, you know, which leads to racism, to leads to all kinds of prejudices. It fights against that. This idea of microloans made me think, you know, the fact that you're a very busy person, you're running all over the place making films, you've got a career to support, and you're trying to do a superhuman number of things with the help of other people, of right. course, in New Orleans. And how do you decide what to do and where to focus on and how to give in that way without becoming overwhelmed or feeling afraid that, like, you're saying yes to too much, you're going to run out of resources, you know? To thine own self be true. I'm tired. 
I don't have the focus. I need someone else to pick up the mantle. I need some, I need to delegate a little bit more. So being very, very uh, conscious of how debilitating it can be, it can become chaotic. Right. Uh, um, really, uh, keeping the focus on the priority. What is the priority of why you got into something in the first place and why you're participating in what you think is going to be a movement, a change for the better? Perfect. I think on that note, let's see what the round three has for us. Yes. Right? Smart, capable people are drowning in the workplace. And this is Yves Morieu from the Boston Consulting Group. Companies have become more and more complicated. People lose purpose, they lose meaning, they lose directions, they have to do, undo, redo, there is more and more work on work, more and more meetings, more and more reporting needs, more and more emails, and less and less is achieved. So people have to work harder and harder, longer and longer, creating less and less value. And this makes a difference in their productivity and of course, in uh, the satisfaction at work. With my teams, we started to study what was happening, why people, for example, when you were interviewing them to understand their job, because consulting is about understanding what people do, some of them started to cry, to cry. It was just asking people, tell me about your work. So this is very surprising. This used not to happen 10 years ago. Henry Ford used to say, all I want is a good pair of hands. The problem is that I need to take the person attached. Today, the business has become much more complex. So we need to better leverage human intelligence, human judgment. And this is not a matter of boxes, of scorecards, of processes. It is how you make the parts work together so that people multiply their intelligence, making the whole worth more than the sum of the parts. Absolutely. We <laughs> <laughs> oui, oui. I mean, he seems to be saying two things. On the one hand, that it's getting worse, that mm -hmm. in the workplace, people are more and more feeling disaffected and disassociated from what it is that they're doing. And uh, at the same time, that the world is becoming more and more complex, the market is becoming more and more complex, and we actually... But sometimes, not by a natural order, but seems to be a culture that is placed upon it. But that because of that complexity, wherever it came from, and I agree with you that humans have had everything to do with <laughs> it, we actually need our creativity, we need our wits about us, we need our humanity more in some ways to be able to navigate this crazy, knotted-up world. But it's very ironic that it's coming from a consultant, right? Because I've always seen consultants as the guys who come in and say, you know, i am work with you for six months, and if it goes right, I'll take all the credit. You know, if it goes wrong, you didn't listen to what I told you to do. You start to overthink right. how it could be done, and you actually hiring on more people to kind of pare down and get to what you need to do. Sometimes that can be yeah. uh, a little hypocritical or... or you know, working at odds with each other. But it reminded me of, so I'm an actor, I'm about to get into building houses and started a food business in New Orleans, you know, to try to give access to fresh food. And my business partner is a consultant, right? And um, it's a different culture from what I was coming from as an actor. And I noticed that most on business trips, I could not understand 
you finish the work of the day, and I have to socialize also with you. I mean, more actors are always like, oh, cool, we finished, cool, you know, I'm going back to the hotel, I may hang out, may not, whatever. Uh, in the corporate world, it seems it is a, an affront. You mean you're not coming to dinner with us? Or you're not going to have drinks with us? I don't, just, we just spent the entire day. We went from like <laughs> 7 to 7, and now I actually just want to go to the hotel and put on the robe and look at uh, and, and some television. That always, to me, was a very cultural thing that you would think in the world of Hollywood happens a lot more, you know, because we're seen as the socializing sort of business. And it actually isn't, you know. It really, you befriend people and you either go out because you're friends, but not because it has to be the business. Now, a lot of business happens because it's at a social event, maybe. Right. But I found in the corporate world, my epiphany was, <laughs> man, after working a long day, we've traveled across the country to work with you and we've worked everything out. At the end of the day, we're going to dinner. We're going to have drinks and then we're going to go to dinner and we're going to spend the whole day, and I get no time for myself. And I, I thought, okay, this is the beginning of the piling on of the bureaucracy that he was speaking of that drowns people. And it's all work. I mean, that's the thing. Like, people have their Blackberries, and they're still responding. And so it's this culture of this that he's talking about, this 24-7, always on, always, I think, demonstrating your professional responsibility right. to everyone and each other, right? Right, and that I am committed, and the fear of being perceived as someone who is not committed if he chooses to say, I would like some private time. I just feel like most of what I see from the corporate world is people focused on the perception right. of work rather than work. And the creativity suffers. Yeah. The creativity suffers because the focus is not on what can be created from what we have, the resources that we have, it's a demonstration of that I am doing something right. with the resources. Right. And I want to make sure that I get my recognition. Right. That is the barometer by which I'm going to judge my worth to this company. Yeah. Now you're going to judge the worth to the company. Because real people are complicated, and they're not sets of deliverables, and they're not sets of easily measurable benchmarks. I'm not saying right. no one should ever send a benchmark, but to see real people, you have to be looking for something other than that. And what's going to happen is it induces behavior. You get away from the things that induce creativity. And the most productivity is going to come from people who are engaged in what they do where they feel that it's not just an occupation, that it's a vocation, something that they're called to do, something that they have to finish because the satisfaction of doing it is really the benefit. You know, when I was studying, when I first started studying acting, and I had that understanding, that they said, we're not trying to teach you how to act. We're trying to teach you what you have to learn to find those things that will benefit your acting the most. So it becomes a part of your life, more of a how lifestyle, live, how to live, yeah. and not just how to work. And, so, and that's the balance that we have to find here. You want the overthinking not to be about the protocol. Right. You, know, you want the obsessive thinking to be about the creativity of whatever you're working on. I agree. That, that's the only way it's going to be good. Wendell Pierce, thank you so much for being on Thinking thank Again you. today. This has been great. I appreciate it. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. People out there listening, I want you to know that without you, we don't have a show. So if you're into it, let the people know on social media. Follow us on Twitter at 
Big Think Again. Go to iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on and rate and review us. We're at close to 100 reviews at this point on iTunes, and if we could turn that into 1,000, I don't think even the ghost of Steve Jobs himself could remove us from iTunes' top charts. Anyway, enough of me. We want to hear from you, and see you back here next Saturday for another episode of Think Again.